This is Rebecca Fleetwood Hessian, host of the Badass Women's Council podcast. You know what I love just as much as hosting a podcast? Being a guest on a podcast. And recently, Michael Ashford, who has a podcast called The Follow-Up Question, invited me to be on his show. So I thought I'd share a bit of podcast love and publish that episode here on my show as well, because he is such a great host and just allowed me to talk about all the things I'm passionate about, things I'm writing about, things I'm thinking about. And I thought it would be a good opportunity if you're new to the show that you'd learn a little bit about me. So here we go. I'm not coming down. You, you, you have a section or a blurb on your website that says there's a look when People are thriving as their most authentic self. That gives me chills when I hear that, but I would love to hear from you. What is that look? When, when you see that look, what, is it, what does it look like? Exactly what you think it would. And, and, and here's why that's important. Let me give you some context before I actually answer the question. So all of my work looks at business being human. So in business, we're careful to control, measure, and optimize. That's uh, everything that we do in business really is about that. Humans are personal, emotional, and social. And we have been conditioned to believe that we shouldn't maybe bring as much of our emotions into work. Well, that's like saying, hey, could you not bring your arms today? They're inconvenient. Like, We don't show up without personal, emotional, and social needs, expectations, and the way we move through the world. And so when I'm coaching and working with clients, I'm watching for how they look and respond, which comes from that personal, emotional, social place as they're talking about things in the business. So a client may be talking about a project that they're working on. And I can tell by the look on their face if it's something they're really excited about, even if it's not, it doesn't even have to be overtly so. There's like this brightness in their eyes. There's this animation when they talk. There's just a different vibe when someone is really doing the things that they are wired to do and doing them with a different kind of meaning and purpose. It shows up. I mean, you think about times that you've, talked with someone or interviewed someone where you think, man, they're just totally going through the motions, right? And you, maybe they're good at their job. They may even be an expert, but you just feel like they're just going through the motions. It feels business-like. It feels robotic. It feels like a machine and they can, they can crank it out, man. They can produce, they can bring you what you want. But if you tap into something where somebody's using all of their humanity to do that, they look different. They just look different. I can't imagine that anyone would disagree with what you just said there, that you, you, fee- you, you know it when you see it. 
why has it been, why has emotion in business been tamped down for so long, particularly with women? Why is that something that we have suppressed and, and lifted up as this emotionalist robot is the way to go? Why, why do you see that being the case? I'll answer the question. I, 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 and then I'll, I'll answer it for men and women. And then we can go down the route of, of how it's perpetuated with, with women. So right. let's, let's go back to, let's go back to the shift from being farmers to factory. I mean, we're going 1800s back now. Okay. When, when we were in farming as our means of survival, it was all about working together as a community. It was living in uncertainty. You never knew if the weather was going to fail, bugs were going to take over everything, half the people in your family would die. Like everything about life was very uncertain. And so you needed faith. You needed each other to work together to a common end of survival. Well, when we shifted to the field, to the factory, the factory is where we realize that when we use the machines and the tools, that the, the economic viability came from being able to control, measure, and optimize. So the factory was all about, let's, let's break business apart into the various pieces and parts. And when we do that, we can ensure we have a better outcome. We can make more money. And then all of a sudden, our work was about pieces and parts, and it wasn't as much about community serving the whole. In fact, you could do a job in a factory for 8, 10, 12 hours a day and not know how it really impacted another human. So we lost a part of our human connection. Well, what perpetuated the problem was then we said, okay, if this control measure optimized, breaking it apart into pieces and parts works really well in the factory, we really need people to get through school quicker. So they took school, which used to be a community classroom, a bunch of people, different ages, living and working together and having conversation. And we made school a factory and we broke it apart into pieces and parts and ages, classrooms and topics. So you could go through quicker and get people into the, the factory faster because the economic engine needed more people. So when you think about that shift that's been now five to six decades in the making, our value has, from the time we're five years old, is compliance to be controlled. Like raise your hand if you have a question. Helping is cheating. Um, there's, there's very little that puts huge value in our lives now around the people, humanity, community connection. And so we've, we've, we've built this system, which economically has been amazing. Like we've had huge benefits out of it. Even after factory work shifted, the factory model still exists today in the way that we work and the way that we educate. And so this idea of us as humans being personal, emotional, and social, which is our human needs and how we interact as humans, is a secondary value, which I believe is why we have so many challenges with kids in school that are struggling mentally and emotionally. We've, we've, we've got adults that are, we've got burnout is an epidemic. So the World Health Organization has said, okay, now we're all burned out. Well, because we're not meeting enough of our human needs, we're trying to operate as machines and we're not machines here to produce. We're humans here to have a personal, emotional, and social experience 
with our work and our lives. So dive into then the, the, the women aspect of it. Why I've been in business all, you know, my entire career and, and have worked my way up the executive chain. And I, I hear the things that are said about women and their emotions and have tried to tamp down, tamp that down as much as possible. But why, why the double standard, I guess, is the question. Well, I, I, I don't know the research as much as maybe some people probably think I do because I do work with a lot of women. But here, here's what I know based on what I've just said is we don't value personal, emotional, and social as a business. We don't. We think, what do your emotions have to do with it? Well, everybody brings their emotions to, to work. Everybody does. And women tend to emote and to show emotions, we, you know, when you're in charge of bearing and caring for children as part of the role that you've been put on the earth for, we're, we're pretty supercharged in that emotion, empathy department and caregiving aspect of things. Even though we all have wildly different personalities, we do know how to care for each other. And so when we bring that in big, bold, beautiful ways into business, it can be jarring and feel like this juxtaposition from what has traditionally been held and valued. But I think what we're seeing in this last five, six years, and will be ongoing over this next decade, is a shift where it's been proven out that when the more women you have on your executive team, the, the, the better the bottom line. So the business case is there because what people inside of your company are craving is the kind of empathic nurturing and caregiving that women can provide. It's just, are there enough men that can stomach it? <laughs> might be part of the challenge. And we've only been in business in a, in a meaningful way for a pretty small number of years. Yeah. So for a lot of years, just a bunch of guys getting together and making the decisions and they, they pretended like they weren't bringing their emotions, even though we all know how much work was done on the golf course. And that was a social emotional experience, right? So our emotions might show up a little different, but it's, it can feel jarring to what people are used to. Um, but the good news is that it's proving to be totally beneficial. So people are just going to have to suck it up and get over it. <laughs> I agree. The The business women leaders and entrepreneurs that you work with, what are the things that they, I don't want to say struggle with the most, but what are the, what are the challenges that they face in their businesses that you're helping them work through? Uncertainty. Hmm. And it can be, it can show up personally, it can show up in a a business strategy, but, and it goes back to this huge value and control. We want to believe that there are assured outcomes in most of our decisions. And the fact of the matter is that's just not true. And so one of the big things that we talk about, whether it's their own insecurities and being unsure about themselves. Uh, It can show up as imposter syndrome. It can show up in a lot of different ways. But this uncertainty can also show up in, hey, I've got this business strategy that I'm feeling like is a really good one, but I don't have a guarantee that it's going to work out. And so you've got to have the guts and the gumption to work past that, what I call the sea of uncertainty that exists in all of our lives. Um, So I'd say that's the common issue for probably every single person that I have worked with and continue to work with today. Yeah, I was going to say male or female, there's, there's probably not a whole lot of difference there, right? (laughs) 
And it, but here's the difference is the hum, in humanity, the way we deal with uncertainty is yeah. personal, emotional, and social. So I yeah. just, I, it's so ironic. I just got off a phone call with a client right before this interview. And what she recognized today is that the people on her, her executive team, she's CEO of, of a startup, they handle uncertainty very different. They handle challenges so differently in their own emotions. One of them is more apt to kind of check out and go and like try to deal with it on his own. Another one is more emotional and wants to process it out loud. Another gets a little more defiant about it and wants to argue about it. All of those are just human responses to things that didn't quite go like they thought they were going to. And so she's learning to not take any of it personally. She's learning that each one of them needs to have their own personal response to those business challenges. You talked about from the farm to the factory and, and then dove into education there. Uh, when did that spark your interest or, or when did that mm-hmm. become part of your messaging that, that this is maybe a problem? I'll, I'll put, put words in your mouth there. Is this a problem? And when did that, when did that kind of spark that idea for you? You know, it's interesting. Our lives are long. You know, you, you always hear people say, well, life is short. And that's usually because some horrific thing has happened to some family member. And all of a sudden you, you, you know, I think life is fragile, but I don't think for most of us it's short. Um, and, and so when you think about how long life is, I, this, what I just talked to you about today has been evolving and changing and, and gathering more information for let's say I'm 54. So for the last 30 some years that this has been evolving, but I, but the desire to understand more about our education system and why it is what it is and why it isn't very effective was born out of um, my first child. My son um, was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and school was a real challenge for him. And so I started to dig into what he needed how the school was responding. And what I uncovered as I dug into how school works is not only was school not very effective for him, it wasn't all that effective for everybody in the classroom, but yet because we have a high value of control, you know, it's easier to say there's something wrong with that kid than there's something wrong with that classroom, right? So I just, I've I've done a ton of research and and looked at our education system and how it benefits it us and how it challenges us. And because I'm a business consultant and have been doing that kind of work for decades as well, I started to see some of the similarities and some of the root cause analysis that came from education to our work environments. And it just has accumulated all of this information and interest over the years to where I'm actually writing a book right now called Business is Human that talks a lot about um, how we got here to this place of burnout by not meeting our human needs. So I don't know, it's just evolved over time. What are some things that stick out to you when you take a look at the education system and in particular in the, in the light of your son who, who has ADHD, what are some things that stick out to you where you point to and say, gosh, if we could do that differently, this would happen. Like where does your mind go? I don't think you can improve the system we have. I think we need a new system. 
because a lot of people have tried to improve the system. Um, I actually tried to start a charter school 10 years ago and got through a couple of rounds of approval with the, with the mayor's office where I was, I was in my community here. And there was enough things that were broken that I pulled out of the whole thing and just said, no, at some point I'd like to go and build the education system that I think would serve us far better. Um, but I don't think you can take the one that we've got and make it what it needs to be. So if I, if I was going to make one, um, it would start with, um, we got to have the basics of communication, right? So you've got to be able to read and write and communicate because we make sense of the world around us through our stories. You know this better than anybody, right? That's why you're passionate <laughs> about what you do. Right. <laughs> and, and that's been the case from, you know, writing on walls of caves to the Bible to every everything has been around communicating and making sense of the world based on stories because our brains are literally wired for story. So our brains make sense of things by creating a story. And so I would start with communication. You base, you got to know how to read, write, communicate. And then once you're able to communicate, then you can start to learn and challenge and understand. But, but before I would go to topics, I would go to understanding ourselves. Because one of the key aspects of success that actually has been researched and, de and defined is that the, the, the more you know yourself, the greater your capacity for empathy and understanding others. So by knowing ourselves well, you start to understand, well, what are the things that I'm uniquely gifted in? What are the things that I'm interested in? What are, what are my feelings about? So getting to know ourselves allows us to then understand others. Then you start to look at, okay, so the world is based on an economic engine, right? we need money to survive. So, so we should, everybody should have a basic foundation in business. The, the basics of business, how money comes in, how money gets spent. What do you do with the, with what's left over? It doesn't have to be, a, it shouldn't be a specialized area. Everybody should have some understanding of commerce. You know, I want, if my kid's going to go work at Chick-fil-A, I'd like for them to have a basic understanding of how they use their time impacts the bottom line of the business, how they serve customers impacts the repeat customers, which impacts the business model. I mean, I believe that everybody should understand commerce at a pretty young age and at least at a high level. Then once you understand commerce, you understand that commerce actually exists, yes, for the financial aspects of survival, but it's also about serving each other. So your business should some, have some aspect of serving another human, right? So if we can use our unique gifts in a business way to serve other humans in a beautiful way, and that is how we make money and, and make create opportunities, well, then you've got the opportunity to specialize. Then someone could say, you know, at this point, they may be into their early 20s, Right. They could say, you know what, I'm really interested in architecture. I've, I've been working here. I've been understanding this. I'm good at building things. I'm uh, Spatial reasoning is part of I've understood through, through this experience, and I'm really great at that. 
I'm going to now go specialize in an area. Then, then you could create education for those specialized areas. But I think those, those are situations where people instead, what we have now is people pick something based on the five careers they know something about when they're 16 years old and then come to realize they're not at all gifted or talented or interested in that area. And the job is nothing like what they thought it was. And now they're 80 to a hundred thousand dollars in debt gaining an education for something that they don't give shit about. (laughs) And then they got to turn around and go find a job trying to use that education doing something else. That just seems pretty ass backwards to me. Well, you know, I'm I'm a walking example of that. I went into college with a as a civil engineering major and walked out with a journalism degree. So go figure. <laughs> um, and let, and um, okay, but I'm going to turn the mic because you know I have my own podcast too. So I'm, I'm going to interview you. I love I so. love getting podcasters <laughs> on the show because you always do this. Go ahead, shoot. <laughs> okay, so when you were thinking about your degree, did journalism ever come up as a viable option when you were in high school? No. Why do you think that is? Um, a, a number of factors. Uh, I, I was I was valedictorian in my high school, uh, so I I was good at all the subjects, all and I was going to go to Kansas State University. No no questions asked. Like I grew up a, a Kansas State fan. You know my family all went there. I was going to go to K State. Well, K State has one of the top engineering programs in the country, and because I was good at math and science. Uh, in high school, a lot of my counselors and I tested well on the ACT and I tested well in, in, uh, you know, the standardized tests that you get in, in, uh, you know, our education system today, my counselors and my, my, the folks who were directing me in high school pushed me towards, Hey, you're going to K-State, get a degree in engineering. And I liked building things out of Legos when I was a kid. So they were like, Hey, you like building things like, let's turn this into civil engineering or get an engineering degree. Okay. Never mind the fact that personality wise, I'm, and this is not to stereotype anyone, but I'm, I'm the exact opposite of, of a, an engineering mind. Like the way that I, I communicate and interact with people. It's just not, it's just not the engineering mindset and tedium bores me to no end. And I was never asked those questions. I was never directed in that direction in high school. And, you know, I could have pointed to another, a number of things that I was good at. I was in uh, debate or I was in mock trial. I was in public speaking. I was in plays. I was, you know, in all these really extroverted things in communication, but communication and journalism was never brought up. And so I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying there um, because I was a failure of, hey, you're going to this school. They have this program. You test well here. Just go do this thing. I got into a, an internship the summer after my freshman year working for the Kansas Department of Transportation as a civil engineering and as a civil engineering intern and was miserable, absolutely miserable and knew right then I can't do this. Oh, you're a perfect example. <laughs> so, so had you had an experience in your education that wasn't about algebra and chemistry and math and science? you would have sat, you would have learned things about yourself like tedious work makes me crazy. You would have learned things about uh, all of your interests would have been clues to really how you're hardwired to move through the world. Um, I spent a lot of time with my clients asking things like, what did you do for fun when you were growing up? 
because it's in our hobbies and our interests that gives give us really strong clues to how we really want to work and want to to relate to people. Um, and, and had you known that, then you would have made different choices. But the other aspect of it is the arts, social studies, um, uh, skilled trades work, hands-on makers work, isn't seen as a great career choice. So very few educators are steering people. So they say things like, get a quote unquote real job. Mm -hmm. Sends me over the edge. I want to poke people in the (laughs) eye with a fork when I hear that. It's like, okay, a real job is one where you provide this product or a service and someone pays you for it. That is a real job. We have more opportunities to to make money in some sort of a a commerce way now than we've ever had. There are gazillions of real jobs. New industries pop up every two to three years that didn't exist. And so using your gifts and talents to do something where you can serve another community, cause, company, and make money is more viable now than it's ever been. So it, in my opinion, should be based on your interests and the way you move through the world not because K-State has a really good engineering program and you can make a lot of money there. And Bingo. that makes sense because, yeah. and, and I'm actually in the book, I have a story where I make fun of, well, if the kid plays with Legos, he probably should be an engineer. Like I literally have <laughs> that in the book as a funny story because it happens all the time. When my daughter was five, you'd ask her what she wanted to do. She'd say, I want to be a teacher. Well, she only knew of maybe two or three careers available to her right. because I was a consultant and she never knew what I did because my job was not a real job, right? <laughs> she knows about nurses, teachers, you know, she knows two or three jobs. So she's going to pick the one that she knows. And then when I'd ask her the follow-up question, I was like, oh, what is it that you think is going to be fun about teachers? Basically, she wanted to hold dominion over a group of people in a classroom. Like she had no interest in anybody's teaching or education. <laughs> she just wanted to be in control. So it, <laughs> Which makes sense for a young child. <laughs> so if you really dig into it, it's um, it's not always what it seems. So that's a that's a perfect example. That yeah. whole idea of well, you can make a lot of money here. You're good at math and science. You should do that. In fact, the No Child Left Behind um, deal in 2001 screwed us in a lot of ways because skilled trade work. Now we have the biggest skilled trade worker gap in our economy than we that we've ever had. It's horrific. Because no one, we, we cut out shop class. Yeah. People needed to be in more math and science classes. So nobody ever got to experience hands-on work to see if it was something that they really enjoyed. And now if they want to do hands-on work, it's seen as lower, not, you know, you must not have been able to get into college. So, oh my gosh, you could go be a plumber for a hundred grand these days because we have such a plumber shortage. Like, you get me yeah. all fired up with these topics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a, there's a marketing problem with those skilled trades jobs that, for whatever reason, people saw them as lesser. When nowadays you can make amazing money in those because they're in such high demand, and that goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the how money is made, supply, demand, the demand for something. Something else you already you also brought up that is was really caught my attention was the idea of knowing yourself to know others. Can you dive into that? I love that. Yeah. What, what did you, how does knowing yourself then, I guess, balloon out from there into empathy for others? When you think about what it takes to truly know yourself, if you're willing to look in the mirror and really study your life, your challenges, your 
gifts and talents, your ability to use those and not use those. If you do the take the due diligence that it takes to dig into your emotions and why you feel the way you feel and why you don't maybe feel the way you think you should feel, that's hard work. And what you realize when you do that is, is that we're all very different, like down to our fingerprints. If you look at your hands right now, your fingerprints are unique. And when you do the work to understand how unique you really are and how intricate we are and how interesting we are, you can't help but look out at someone else and recognize that they have those same fears and insecurities and gifts and talents and intricacies. And, and it just evokes this sense of empathy and understanding for all of our uniqueness. As the mother of, of an ADHD diagnosed child, how much more is that, is that important to you to get others to understand the uniqueness mm-hmm. factor that you just talked about? How much greater is, is that on your shoulders? When I first was trying to understand the world around my son, he was in third grade. And I was realizing that we were losing our like for each other. We will always love each other. But I was so frustrated with school. He was frustrated with school. And it it just hit me one day. It's like all of our conversations were about grades and homework and school. And and I thought, how is it that we're going to get through this system, but not like each other at the end of it? And so I stepped back and I said, you know what? I'm going to no longer care about his grades. I'm going to try to understand more about him and his heart. And so I started to move through the world differently. And I tried to see the world through his eyes. And I asked lots of questions. And I, and I really tried to understand what was happening with and for him. And it was in that discovery where I realized that my son was so different from me in so many ways. And then I started to understand that that was the case for all of us, right? And so I went down this path of wanting to be an advocate for kids, parents of kids with attention deficit disorder. I thought that was going to be a thing for me. And I created some training modules for parents of kids with ADHD. I did a TEDx talk about it. And, and I really did, a, I think, a nice job of helping to educate and advocate for these kids that and I, and, and I titled everything, not wrong, just different, because I didn't want people to parents to parent these kids with the understanding that there was something wrong with them that needed to be fixed. In fact, it's that perspective that causes such strong self-esteem issues and challenges in, in, in people that are trying to move through the education system when it's hard for them. And, and so when you start to see people through the lens of not wrong, just different, you realize it's not really about a diagnosis. It's about the fact that every single one of us on this planet are very unique. And yet we've kind of forced ourselves to live within an education system that values normalcy and compliance and control. And and, and then I realized it really isn't about advocating for ADHD. It's about advocating for our personal uniqueness. Um, and, and then I went down the path of saying, okay, so if I'm going to change the education system, I'm not going to change it through the lens of the parents of the kids with a diagnosis and a challenge. 
you're going to change the education system by tapping into the hearts and minds of everybody who has a kid who they want to really be great. Um, and so working with high achieving women became kind of a, a joke that I'd say, if you really change the world, you get a bunch of moms together that are aggravated about something, they can change some stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but it's just evolved over time that I I've recognized firsthand that our uniqueness is our competitive advantage. It's our superpower. And when we can get through the uncertainty and the insecurity of life by owning that uniqueness um, and tapping into the power of our humanity and, uh, and channel that to a business model, oh my gosh, you can, it's, it's un, you're, you're unstoppable. It's, there's infinite ways to create beautiful experiences, both for the humans, but also to build pretty amazing businesses. And I love that. Do you ever feel the dichotomy of, you know, something that can work in business? It's, it's tried and true, or I, I don't like the word best practices, but you, you've seen a situation before and you can, you can bring your experience to it. And what you just talked about, the uniqueness of a situation, the uniqueness of a business, the uniqueness of the, the, the man or woman leading that business. Do you ever feel the pull of those two kind of working at odds with each other constantly in fact one of the things that I spend a lot of time helping people understand is there are a lot of right answers so so school taught us that there's mostly right and wrong and that's just not true yeah one one (laughs) right answer one wrong answer or lots of wrong answers yeah right (laughs) yeah and that's just not true and and I I think we Okay, I'll give you a perfect example with my podcast. I did this to myself. I knew I wanted to start a podcast. So I did what you always do when you have an idea. I started Googling how to start a podcast. Um, But I wasn't just looking for how to start a podcast. I I wanted to do it the right way. I wanted the right way to do a podcast. And I spent months and all you could... And there was all kinds of information, but none of it really lined up to say this was the right way and this was the wrong way. So then I did the next thing that you do when when you're trying to do something new like this. I hired a podcast consultant. <laughs> and and what, what she said to me every time I would ask a question is, how do I do this? And what about that? She would come back and say, well, what, what do you want the show to be? And how do you want it to be? And I finally said, I just want to know the right way to do it. And she said, it's your damn show, Rebecca. Do it the way you want to do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I spent more than six months stalled out from even starting because I was looking for the right and the wrong way to do it because I didn't want to look like an idiot, right? I had a reputation to uphold. I couldn't have a bad or wrong podcast. I had to have the right way to do it. And I think we do that to ourselves in a lot of things in life, looking for the right and wrong answers. And instead, we should be looking to say, who's it for and why does it matter? And then look to connect in more of a human way and build a business around the human needs versus the other way around. You just said something that Lindsay Chepkema, who I know you work with, has mentioned on her episode of this show. Who is it for and why are you doing it or why does it matter? I I love it. I think that was the title of her episode, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, how do you how do you come to that moment of self-awareness where we've been just in business, in education, in life? We've been told there's a right, there's a wrong, especially nowadays with so much division and people trying to box people into a black and white Mm -hmm. issue. 
how do you lift yourself above that? How do you help your clients lift themselves above that and have the awareness to understand what it is they want? You know, there's two approaches to it. Sometimes people come to me when they're just burned out. So like, F it, this sucks. (laughs) I'm, I'm done with the standards. I'm done trying to meet everybody else's expectations. Uh, I'm done caring about it because it's too hard. And and that's an okay starting place too. Um, sometimes you get there from a, I have bigger dreams and I want to elevate above the standard of what's commonly held beliefs because I believe that I can do more and be more if I let go of that. So either place is an okay starting place. I wish it didn't have to be that, you know, extreme of a place to to get there, right? One way or the other. Um, Just be curious. When you you think about curiosity and how we move through the world questioning other people's motives or why things work the way they work, what if you just held up the mirror and got really curious about yourself? What if you just got really curious about what are your triggers? What are the, what's the work that I love to do? What are the conditions? This is my favorite question that stumps people. What are the conditions that you work best in? People look at me like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you choose every day kind of how you move through the world and what you do or don't do. Have you decided what conditions you work best in? Even just asking yourself that question, just getting really curious about yourself is a beautiful exercise. I have a download called Dream the Decade, which I created last fall before I knew we were going to be in the dumpster fire of 2020. It seemed like a really hopeful and interesting Good timing. Yes. Um, but all of the questions in there still apply because we still are moving through with a new decade, but it's called Dream the Decade. And it just moves you through a set of questions to ask yourself more about what do you really want? Because I think as humans, we are good at articulating what we don't want or what the pain is or what the challenges are. But the place of emotions doesn't really have the the capacity for language. And Simon Sinek taught us a lot about that and start mm. with why. But to be able to ask yourself, what do I do want? And articulate your own story, to write your own story, and then go look for the opportunities to live the story you want is a beautiful way to, to move through the world. So I don't know. You get me all excited about things. And I think, did I even answer the question? Like, <laughs> I, I, you answered it how you wanted to answer it, right? <laughs> a little right. bit of a leading question here, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Are you living your authentic life? I am. And it is beautiful and scary and frustrating and every emotion that you can possibly describe And I ask myself that every single week. So I started my business about, I don't know, four or five years ago now. And prior to this, I was, I had been in uh, a career for 19 years um, with the Franklin Covey organization. And I was traveling the world and I was working with the world's best thought leaders. I was making lots of money. I was serving my clients in a beautiful way. I was, you know, my work was in a best-selling business book. Uh, Every marker of success that I didn't even know to dream about, I was doing. So, of course, when things are going that well, you say, hey, I think I'm going to quit and start my own business, which is what I did. Because I just knew that there was so much 
I had in me so many dreams, so much creativity that I wasn't able to use in my role. And I had to give myself the space to explore that. And you talk about uncertainty. Holy crap. Um, what it took for me to get to that point of saying I'm, I'm willing to, to jump into that sea of uncertainty was huge. And, and, and I'm, I'm a big faith person. So I just prayed for God ideas, not good ideas for a lot, for a long time until things started to, to, to roll and progress. And one day I was sitting out on my back patio and I was writing, I was working on some of the early stages of this book that I'm working on. And I was frustrated. I was angry. Things weren't going as fast as I wanted them to. And just, just not having a good day. And then all of a sudden I stopped and I said, okay. And I remembered writing in my journal year, the year or two before, um, I just want every morning to feel like a Saturday morning. I want to have the time and space to explore ideas and dream and hope and wonder and create something from it. Well, that's exactly what I was doing on a Tuesday morning. You know, another place in my journal says, I just want to tell people stories. Well, my podcast and my Rise and Thrive experience, and that's exactly what I'm doing. So even on the days that suck, and there are some days that suck, I remind myself that this was what I asked to walk into and it's in that place where things suck and struggle that you learn more about yourself too so it's in those places where I get innovative and I make changes and improve and yeah I'm doing everything that I think God hoped I would do with what he gave me how does a person who is living that authentic life that authentic true to themselves version of themselves how do they view the uncertainty that they're going through versus someone who is stuck or not living authentically. How do they view, how do those two different worldviews play out? I don't know how to do this life that I'm living this authentic life without my faith. I just, I, that's how I do it. So when things are really uncertain, I picture that, you know, God's up ahead of me paving the way. And I just, can't see what he's working on, but I have to trust and have faith that that's the case. Because what I do know is the more faith that I have, the more uncanny connections that happen, right? You know, you can sit and you can make the business plan and, you know, we, we all have it, right? You, you have all your notes and your business plan jotted down, but it doesn't account for the fact that the next time I sit down, um, beside someone that is completely unexpected in the coffee shop and they are the exact solution to something that I needed that I didn't even know to plan for. Right. So those are the kinds of things that when I'm feeling really uncertain, I just say to myself, you know, God's got this worked out and I just need to relax and make a cup of coffee and let it play out like it's supposed to. And, and that's what keeps me moving forward is, is my faith. Awesome. Rebecca, how can people follow along with your work? Uh, eventually, when you publish that book, where are you gonna where are you gonna let it be known? <laughs> as a as a as a fellow author, I feel your pain right now. Where can people go to to connect with you and learn more? I'm gonna answer that question, but I am gonna say if if anybody is out there writing a book or is inspired or is aspiring to write a book, this is my third iteration of this book. So it's not like you wake up one day and you go 
today I'm going to write a book and it's going to be very fabulous. I'm going to sit in the coffee shop and, you know, whatever. <laughs> I've written basically two 70,000 word books to get all of the ideas that I had out in a really messy and crappy way so that I could finally get the format that I needed to put this one, this third and final iteration out. So I think whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I'm writing a book, it sounds very, you know, suave and sexy. And it is a colossal, hard, pain in the ass activity. <laughs> Agreed. So, just to clear up any misconceptions <laughs> that people may be feeling about me right now. Um, it's messy and it's hard, but I love it. Um, where can people get in touch with me? So my website is we thrive live and there's a place that you can always connect with with me there i'm i'm active on linkedin rebecca fleetwood hessian great place to connect my podcast is called the badass women's council but 47 percent of my listeners are men so apparently the topics resonate in 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 both ways and That's i'm great. pretty active on instagram with badass women's council as well awesome. and honestly i'm 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 open if anybody has questions or wants to connect email me, Rebecca at we thrive.live. One of the things you ask about me living my authentic life, one of the most bold and courageous things that I've done is I only check email twice a week. So I don't feel like I'm a slave or a prisoner to my email. So if you message me um, within a few days, I'll get back with you and be happy to schedule a time to talk. <laughs> Things are becoming much more clear as you answer these questions here. <laughs> Rebecca, um, thank you so much for your time. One last question for you. What's a question that you wish you were asked more? Mm, what a good question. Um, I rarely get stumped. Like, oh, this is fabulous. Um. I guess it's the one that I always encourage people to ask our youth is what do you love to do? What do you love about your life? We, we always go to the, what do you do? Um, but when you ask people, what do they love? It gives a far deeper insight to who they really are. So I think that's always a great question is, you know, what do you love about your life? What do you love to do? It doesn't have to be an occupation. Um, I love to walk in the woods with my dogs. I love a lot of things that have nothing to do with how I make my paycheck. Let's, let's go there. What do you love to do? What do you love about your life, Rebecca? Mm. Oh my gosh. I love nature. Anytime I can be out in nature and understanding that I am part of such a much bigger picture, I think is so life-giving mm. and it, it, it gets you out of that selfish of, you know, all the things that you might've been frustrated about. I can stand in the middle of the woods and hear the millions of creatures that are around me and realize that I am just one little speck in the, in the big universe that is, that is our life. So I love to be in nature. Um, I love to write right now. It's feeling a little taxing, but, but I, I do love to write. I love, I love antiquing and junking. So I love it when somebody throws something out on the side of the road and I see it and I'm like, Oh, look, my next, treasure and I take it home and paint it and make it look beautiful. I love creating. I love to paint and draw and art and I love to create things. Beautiful. Love it. See, and that's fun to talk about when yes. you ask somebody that. Did you see it? Did you see <laughs> you my face look different when I talked about what I love? You took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> when you can get people talking about the work that they love, they look different. Absolutely. I, I see it. 
very clearly right now. So thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm not coming down. Thanks so much for listening. It was fun to just think through some of the things I'm writing about and passionate about, and I hope you enjoyed. Make it a great day. I'm not coming down. I never liked it on the ground. I'm not coming down.